All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, so good to see uh, all of you here today. Great to worship with you. Uh, if you're joining us from home, uh, welcome. And, uh, you know, every week I get, get to see uh, so many new faces and uh, really love to uh, be, you know, meet new people, hear your stories, uh, what brought you to L.A. This is that season during the year when a lot of people are moving to the city. Um, and so it's been great to, to get to know all of you. Uh, again, I just want to highlight real quick that um, the song that was distributed on our mailing list, one of the things we're trying to do more of as a church is find ways to integrate all of our different ministries together. Sometimes, you know, children's is happening on the other side of campus, worship, uh, college, these things can feel like islands, but you know, we thought about one way we could kind of bring the entire church around the sermon series we're doing right now in the book of Mark. And so I did the inductive I did an inductive Bible study with our worship team. Um, and then the, the, the arrangement that you got on, on the mailing list is kind of the product of that, um, of their hard work and just their desire to really um, bring the sermon series uh, out creatively. And so um, definitely listen to that and be on the lookout uh, for all those things on um, Spotify and, and iTunes and all that. Uh, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're looking at verses uh, 27 uh, all the way to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Okay, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. This is the reading of God's Word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are continuing our series through the book of Mark, and today we come to the turning point of this entire book, okay, where we find Jesus asking Peter the central question. Uh, it's, it's the title of our series. Uh, it's meant to provoke something in us, and it's this question, who do you say that I am? And every week I've been asking us to consider who do we really believe Jesus is? Is he an ideological construct? 
Is he a genie that exists to grant us uh, the things that we want? Is he someone we turn to just in the difficult seasons of our lives? Is he just one piece of our version of the American dream? And the question underneath the question is, if you knew who Jesus really was, would you still follow him? If you really knew who Jesus was, would you still follow him? And why I say this is the turning point of Mark's narrative is that up to this point, uh, the story seems to mo be moving in a very predictable fashion. Okay, if you remember in Mark chapter 1, Jesus emerges from the wilderness and he makes this grand epic announcement. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And then from Mark 1 to Mark 8, it feels like the momentum is just building because it feels like, oh man, Jesus is playing the part. He's Everything is going according to plan. He says this new kingdom has come, this long-awaited kingdom with a new king that's going to fix every broken thing, that's going to right every wrong, that's going to defeat all of Israel's enemies once and for all. And it really feels like that's where the story's going. You know, Jesus is healing people left and right. He's casting out demons. He's silencing the sea. He's feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He almost begins to carry this supernatural, superhuman character, right? And so we get, you know, if you're like the disciples, at this point, you're like, let's go. You know, we, we left everything to follow this guy, and it feels like our investment is paying off. Right? Everything is going according to plan, and it just makes so much sense right, that, that this chapter is taking place in Caesarea Philippi, and that, that region was named after Caesar Augustus. So there are just so many imperial undertones here. You know, Again, they thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was going to take his followers, i.e. them, and rule and reign in this new kingdom. And so it makes sense that it feels like this is the point where Jesus really begins to march toward the throne and on the way he asks his disciples who do people say that I am what are people saying about me and they give him all these answers some people say you're John the Baptist some people say you're Elijah you're one of the prophets they list all these great men and then he asks the faithful question well who do you say that I am and to this point uh, Peter answers and he says you are the Christ and basically what Peter is saying here is you're better than these great men. You're greater than these great men. You are the Christ. You are the long-awaited king. You are the chosen one. And this is where like the dramatic music is supposed to start playing in the background. The flaming sword is supposed to come from the sky and Jesus is supposed to take that sword and say, you're right, let's do this. Okay, and I don't even know if Jesus talks like that, but you know, this is what you expect and yet there's a plot twist here. Jesus doesn't deny that he's the Christ, but he does say, what he does say is, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be conquering anyone. In fact, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And Mark makes it a point to say Jesus says these things plainly. You know, Jesus is someone who is often very cryptic with his responses, someone you all often don't know what he's talking about, but Mark makes it a point to say he says this very plain and simple I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. And you have to love Peter's boldness here. It says he pulls Jesus aside. He begins to rebuke him. So one moment he, he says, you are the Christ. And the next moment he's saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. Peter basically saying, I don't think you know what being the Christ is. You're a winner, Jesus. 
You're not supposed to suffer. I was there when you healed the demoniac. I was there when you silenced the sea. I've been watching you heal people. You're not supposed to suffer. And to this, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, uh, the worst thing that you could be called by God is Satan. Okay, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Um, you know, Jesus has encountered some annoying people up to this point. Uh, he's encountered a lot of Pharisees and scribes who've questioned everything that, he, everything that he's doing. And yet, to the guy who just correctly identified who Jesus is, you are the Christ, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, you can believe all the right things about Jesus and still be more aligned with the devil than you are with him. I want you to think about that and let that sink in, right? I, I mean, I'm just going to take a guess here. I, I don't think if I were to ask for a show of hands, like how many of you worship Satan, I don't think anyone would raise their hand. Okay, I hope nobody would raise their hand. Because oftentimes we think of Satan and we think about like seances in the forest and we think about, you know, chanting incantations and drinking animal blood and and wearing black and these kinds of things, right? And yet here, Jesus turns to his closest disciple, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And he explains it. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying, when you begin to look at the plans of God through the lens of your plans, you're not following Jesus, no matter how much you think you know. Put another way, when you elevate your thoughts, your desires, and your ways above the thoughts, desires, and ways of God, you're more aligned with the will of Satan than you are with the will of God. Jesus is saying to be aligned with me means you must put to death your self-will. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a uh, well-known uh, German theologian uh, who was hanged for his resistance to the Nazi regime during World War II, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he took those words literally. Now, this message is probably the most unpopular message I could possibly preach to a congregation in LA in 2021. This message about losing yourself in a city where people come here literally from all over the world to do what? To find themselves, to self-actualize, to be fulfilled, to discover their true potential, discover who they really are, right? As if sitting at home alone in your studio apartment, eating a chimichanga from Trader Joe's, having an ex existential crisis, wondering what the meaning of life is, isn't depressing enough. You have to come to church and you have to hear the pastor say, yeah, you have to give up your dreams. You have to give up the things that you want. You have to, you have to give up your will to follow Jesus. We want preachers to say, Jesus is going to help you. Jesus is going to fix all your problems. Jesus is going to help you achieve all your career goals and your relationship goals. We want a preacher to say, your best life now. The best is yet to come. This is the first day of the rest of your life. 
We want to know that Jesus is going to humble all the difficult people in our lives, that Jesus is going to give us the family and the life that we always dreamed of. This is what Peter wants. This is what he's asking for. Jesus is his ticket to glory. Jesus is his ticket to self-actualization, which is why Peter's so pissed. I mean, the disciples are listening to this. They're probably like, we left the fishing business for this? We left our lucrative business so that someone could tell us, you got to take up your cross if you want to follow me. And you have to understand, for the Jewish people, the cross wasn't just this sentimental trinket that we wear around our necks. For the Jewish people, the cross was the most humiliating symbol of shame and death. It was the worst way a person could die. You couldn't talk about it in regular everyday conversation because it was that shameful. And Jesus points at that image and he says, you want to follow me? That's what following me looks like. And this message is just so hard for us because we're living in a time in history where people are more obsessed with themselves than ever before. A recent study just say that uh, for, for people ages 18 to 24, uh, the third picture, every third picture is a selfie. This is what they're saying, right? So you pick, take a picture of your dog, you take a picture of your dinner, and then you're like, oh, got to take a picture of myself again, right? This is how obsessed we are with self. A Time Magazine article that came out in 2013 says narcissistic personality disorder is up by three times in millennials, and that number is continuing to climb in Gen Z. How can it not be? Because we're growing up, kids are growing up in a world where selfishness is a virtue. Like, I don't remember ever growing up hearing someone say, you know what, Jason, you just really need to go get some me time. Just go treat yourself. Speak your truth. Live your truth. Do what feels right. Right? It's what the great 21st century philosopher Selena Gomez once said, the heart wants what it wants. Right? This is the mantra of our day. David Brooks, who's a New York Times bestselling author, says, we live in a culture of selfism. This is the religion of our day, a culture that puts all the emphasis on self, on self-care, and on self-display. And what this means is that anything outside of ourselves that tries to make claims on our bodies, our mind, and our way of life isn't just bad, it's oppressive, it's evil. Because the only person you're allowed to trust in this paradigm is yourself. And so Jesus isn't allowed to say anything that goes against what you feel. Jesus isn't allowed to say anything that contradicts our experiences. He's just the means to our own self-fulfillment. We use him when it benefits us, and we drop him when it doesn't. He's just a pawn in our game. And what begins to happen is that over time, we begin to disciple Jesus to look more like us than allow Jesus to disciple us to look more like him. You know, if you're sitting here today and you feel like, man, Jesus agrees with all of my social views. Uh, Jesus agrees with all of my choices. Everyone I vote for, I feel like Jesus would vote for. He agrees with all the decisions I make about my family. Uh, he, he agrees with how I use my money. He's always on my side. If that's the case, I'm just going to tell you, a lot of times we think, man, I'm just so aligned with Jesus. No, you're not. You, sh you just love yourself. Because Jesus is saying, to follow me is to deny yourself. It's to take up your cross. 
We're not following Jesus when Jesus aligns with everything we believe, when Jesus aligns with all of our feelings and emotions and experiences. All of us say we want a life bigger than ourselves, and yet we're not willing to get beyond ourselves. That's the great challenge of our culture. We want to live a life greater than ourselves, and yet we can't seem to get beyond ourselves. A call to follow Jesus is a call to die. If every day doesn't feel like a battle to love difficult people in our lives, if every day doesn't feel like a battle to bring justice and empathy and kindness into our homes and our communities, if every day doesn't feel like death, then we have to ask ourselves the question, are you really following Jesus? Man, that's depressing, I know. But Jesus isn't done here, don't worry. In the next verse, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's saying, if you're willing to deny yourself and put to death your self-trust and your self-will and your self-sufficiency, you'll actually find something infinitely more valuable on the other side. When you make the excruciating choice to forgive someone who won't even admit they're wrong, when you make the excruciating choice to give your resources away, even though you yourself are struggling to pay the bills, when the temptation is there to hoard resources for yourself, when you make the excruciating choice to not react in anger, when you make the excruciating choice, maybe I won't, maybe I won't share my opinion in this forum because it's going to hurt the person sitting in front of me. Yes, it will feel like death. Sometimes you will lose sleep. Sometimes you will lose your sanity. Sometimes you will lose your friendships. There will be costs. You may even lose a battle or two. But Jesus is saying, if you're willing to do this, you will find the life you so deeply long for on the other side. It's the great paradox of the kingdom. The more you try to control, the less control you have. The more you're willing to give up control, the more Jesus can shape you to become the person you're created to be. You know, a lot of times we want this ideal family, right? And so we pursue it at all costs. But you know what happens? The more we try to control that, we actually end up becoming more resentful, more controlling, more upset at our kids and our spouse because they're not falling in line with that vision. The more we want that ideal career or that ideal job and we do everything in our power to control that, the more we become disappointed. The more we get upset at our coworkers and our bosses who don't give us what we want, the more we end up discontented. Those who try to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. You know, I, I think to some extent we understand this instinctively. Right? We understand that to accomplish anything worthwhile in this life, we have to exercise some level of self-denial. Self you know, I talk to a lot of residents in our church right now. I mean, they, I mean, I don't know how you do it. 100-hour weeks, little to no sleep. You don't get to see your family, no vacation time, no trips. But they know what's on the other side. They know this is what it takes to be a doctor. Tom Brady right? Uh, arguably, I, I mean, I don't even think it's arguably anymore. He's the bona fide goat uh, of quarterbacks in football. I mean, this guy, I just uh, looked up what his like daily regimen is. It sucks. And this guy has seven Super Bowl rings. And you know what time he goes to sleep every night still? 8.30 p.m. 
He goes to sleep at 8.30 p.m. in order to wake up at 6 a.m. and to eat like rabbit food. Okay, this is, but why does he do it? Because this is what it takes to be the greatest. This is what it takes to win. Jesus is saying, to follow me, you're going to have to give up a lot. You're going to have to let go of some things. But are the things you're holding on to so tightly worth your soul? And this is what Jesus means when he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Uh, you know, this week I binge-watched a squid game. And um, I, I, I wasn't going to watch it, but literally every counseling appointment I had over the last two weeks started out with a person saying, did you watch Squid Game? Um, and so, you know, I did it for you. You know, it was my pastoral duty uh, to watch Squid Game. And don't worry, I'm not going to give it away. Um, but the premise of the show is basically you have these people whose lives are in shambles, right? They're just in financial ruin, and they're playing this mysterious game to win this huge prize that's supposed to solve all their problems. And, um, you know, it's such a stark commentary on the human condition because basically the question that's driving the entire show is how far is a person willing to go to protect and preserve themselves? I mean, that's what's driving the entire show. And I was watching it this week and started reflecting on a lot of things and started reflecting on our humanity and started reflecting on my own life. And I don't know about you, but it's so tiring, isn't it? To live our entire lives trying to preserve and protect ourselves. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of trying to find myself and make a name for myself and discover who I really am. I'm so tired of trying to make meaning out of my own life. I'm so tired of the mental, emotional hoops I have to jump through to protect my own self-image. I'm so tired. You know, there's a lot right now being written about narcissism because, again, trends seem to point to the fact that we're living in the most self-absorbed generation ever. And historically, um, NPD was seen as like a genetic thing. You know, it was something you were born with. Uh, more and more studies are showing that NPD actually can be something you develop over time. It can actually be learned. And a recent study, I was reading a recent study um, that talked about how um, they basically tracked um, infants from, from childhood to adulthood, and, and they looked at some of the things that happened that might have caused them to um, be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder later on in life. And they say, you know, when we're all born, all infants have some level of selfishness and narcissism. This is kind of part of an evolutionary imperative, right? We need, you know, there, there's something in them that knows they need to get their needs met. They have to do whatever they can to survive. So whether that be cry or, or whine, you know, this is part of their evolutionary imperative. But they said that some, somewhere down the line where certain kids don't grow out of this and what ends up actually becoming narcissism is that at some point in time, because of something a caretaker said, a parent said, a teacher said, someone that they trusted, whether because of neglect or abuse, there's something that gets implanted in their minds that said, huh, the people in my life that are supposed to care for me, I'm not going to be able to get my needs met through them. There's something that gets imprinted in our minds that says, hmm, uh, I'm on my own here. 
I'm going to need to take care of myself. I need to do more. I, I, I guess like the people in my life aren't going to help me in this regard. And so we begin to build and build this certain ideal of self in order to protect ourselves. And in doing so, all of life becomes this rat race to protect ourselves at all costs, to elevate ourselves, to boost ourselves, to get our needs met. That ultimately it stems from this deep sense in which unless we do something for ourselves, we're not worthy of love. We're not worthy of care. And you and I may not be narcissists in a clinical sense, but I believe there's something in all of us that feels like if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody will. It's exactly what Adam and Eve were feeling in the garden when they began to doubt whether or not God was trustworthy and when they began to buy into the lie that if they don't take care of number one, no one will. Many of us this morning will struggle with a message about self-denial, will struggle with a message like this because at our innermost core, we don't believe our needs will actually be met if we let go, if we let go of ourselves. We don't know. We're not sure. We question whether or not we are actually loved and cared for, and so we work our whole lives to build some ideal of self, some image of self that makes us feel significant and worthy so that we can earn that love and care. And I want to say this. Do you want to know how significant and worthy you are? Do you want to know? Earlier I said we're willing to deny ourselves for the things that are important. And the more important something is, the more we're willing to give up. I bet you I can ask any parent in this room, what would you give up for your children? Every parent would say everything. Well, let me ask you, what would it take for the creator of the universe, the only perfect being that ever existed, to empty himself from every right and privilege that was rightfully his? to suffer rejection, abandonment, and humiliation, to willingly go to the cross and die the worst imaginable death possible. How important would something or someone have to be infinitely important? If you're not sure this morning if you're significant or worthy, or if, you, if you're not sure if your needs are gonna be met, if you're not sure if someone loves you enough to take care of you and make sure your deepest needs are met, look no further than the cross. It's there. We try to find self-fulfillment on our own, not realizing everything we're looking for has already been given to us in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Friends, we don't surrender ourselves. We don't deny ourselves because we think we're going to get something in return. We surrender ourselves because there's nothing else we need. The gospel tells us everything we could ever hope for in this life is ours. This is why the Apostle Paul, while sitting in a prison cell with nothing left, is still able to say, I want to know Christ, not just in his resurrection, but in his suffering. I want to know him. I want to become like him in his death because he understands that the power of his resurrection is already available to him 
in Christ Jesus. There is no amount of money or pride or fame he could lose that would ever make him want to forfeit his soul. Um, I have this small book on my bookshelf, and it's called uh, Prayer of the Martyrs. And uh, it's a book that is basically a collection of the last words of all the famous Christian martyrs uh, throughout the centuries. And once in a while, I'll pick it up and, um, and take a look at it. And this week I did, and, and I was struck by the last words of Sabbath the Goth. And this is a, a saint who was martyred for his faith in 372 A.D., and, and they drowned him in a river. And on his way to that river, on his way to his execution, he prayed this prayer aloud for everyone to hear. And ultimately, it was recorded uh, in a book for us. Um, you know, it was, it was memorialized. And this is what he said. He said, Blessed are you, Lord, and may your son's name be blessed forevermore. I can see what those who persecute me cannot. On the other side of this river, there is a multitude waiting to receive my soul and carry it to glory. I can see what those who persecute me cannot. What gave this man the strength to pick up his cross was that he could see what was on the other side. Now, you and I may not know what literal bodily persecution feels like. There are many in our world that do. There are millions every year around the world being actually persecuted for their faith. But I still believe in here there's an invitation for us as believers living in the comforts of L.A. in 2021 to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. What does that look like for you today? What is the cross you need to take up to be faithful to Jesus today? What do you need to surrender what relationship, what circumstance, what bitterness, what do you need to put to death? And we aren't just putting bad things to death. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's talking about putting to death the entire old self. All of our old ways of thinking, all of our old ways of being. Is it a need to be right? Is it a need to be validated? Is it a need to be viewed as worthy and good? Because these aren't bad things. We're actually created to be in right relationship with God and each other. We were actually created in God's image and called good. We were actually created worthy of love and care. It's not that these things are bad things. It's that we're looking for these things in the wrong places. And Jesus says, all that you could ever want is found in the cross. The cross is our assurance that today, if we're willing to surrender ourselves to Jesus, if we're willing to surrender our dreams, our needs, our comfort, our convenience, and our will to him, the cross is our assurance that we will find everything we're looking for and everything we need on the other side. Let's pray. Gracious God, this message is, is so difficult um, to stomach. I know that for many of us, the thought of putting to death old habits, thought of putting to death old mindsets just feels impossible. 
The thought of denying ourselves and denying our self-fulfillment feels impossible and, and, and doesn't even feel right. But Lord, we know that sometimes at the core of this is fear. It's fear that if we give up ourselves that our needs won't be met. That we won't be loved, that we won't be cared for, that we won't have what we need to survive. And I pray that this morning you would help us to look at the cross. Help us to see your surrender. Help us to see what's on the other side. Help us to see what's on the other side of this death, that it's the power of your resurrected life available to us now. And so God, help us. Help us to see that we're already deeply loved and cherished and may that be the fuel may our self-denial may may what we give up simply be a response to who you are and what you've done we thank you for this word would you continue to plant it on our hearts and we pray all this in your son's precious name amen